Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hero Bells podcast. My name is Kyle McCaffrey, and welcome to episode 25. Today is a continuation of the last podcast, and I'm going to go into another strategy to finding your life's tasks or your life's task singular. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube on Instagram. My handle is at hero underscore kbells, and Facebook, I'm at hero kbells, and YouTube, you can just search hero bells, and you will find all sorts of useful videos to help you get into shape, super inexpensive and fast. I really appreciate you um, checking in with me today. Anyway, so like I said, this is going to be a continuation of the last podcast, which was episode 24 on Mastery by Robert Green. And he really points out that we need to talk about our life's tasks and figure it out because we need to develop a purpose in our life. And then I, I closed last time with how that relates to fitness and to being in shape. Because, and the reason it, it lines up, I'm sorry, if you hear anything in the background, I do live in an apartment building with paper thin walls. I've said this a million times. I'm sorry, you might hear dogs barking or people talking, but anyway, back to the point. The reason why you want to find out what your purpose is, is because it makes the reason why you're training much more uh, important to you and therefore you're going to continue doing it. And it's important that you stick to it. And no one's saying that you have to be some fitness influencer where you're just jumping around like a ninja. You don't have to do that. You have to do something and it has to have a deep meaning. And the, re the thing that you can do immediately to think about the deeper meaning is you can, you can think about the future. You have to think about your future. So you might be very young or you might be middle-aged or even old and you want to be thinking about how long, say if you're old, you want to be thinking how long can you hang on, I guess. And you want to make sure that your body's running very well. And same with... I suppose any category or age range that you want to have your body working smoothly, but obviously the priorities are completely different. If you're young, you're going to be thinking about, well, you want to, of, of course, achieve a pinnacle of performance. That might be one objective, but if you're very, what's the word here? Conscientious and thinking about the future you're going to want to do this so that when you say, for for instance, you have kids, maybe you're doing it for your job, for your career, where you want to be in good shape and good physical health so that you don't have to worry about your health. You can just fly at whatever you're doing. Say you're a lawyer, you're in law school, or you're a doctor. You don't want to be thinking about fitness, but you, fitness is still incredibly important. So knowing that you're, knowing your purpose is going to make you better and make you stick to it. So, like I said, welcome to episode 25. So far in my 34 years, I've changed direction, pivoted, quit, completed, and worn out multiple fields. This wasn't always in my control. Most of the time it was. But I knew that most of the things I actually enjoyed were not going to pay the bills. The level of support I got from my loved ones wouldn't be enough to let me live out my dreams without sacrificing my integrity and living in their broom closet. Until the past two years, 
Did I finally say fuck it? I wasn't exactly shooting for the moon, but I was going to get seriously uncomfortable to get away with from my chronic pains of poor life's choices, life choices, and available options. Things in my current reality weren't good, and I had less and less mobility to positively affect my future. I was stuck. Doing what I do for a living now was a fantasy, and maybe it still is, but it feels more like it's mine. I had no strategy to get where I am either. Perhaps the journey I set out, set myself on would have been smoother if I had read the book Mastery, or at least I would have sidestepped unnecessary anxiety. Part of the nervousness anyone feels going into the unknown comes from not being able to clearly see the options available. It's hard to think that anything that doesn't bring about an immediate tangible result is even worth your time. It's easy to drown in options as well. Nothing is guaranteed in life. Even if you're filthy rich, it can be taken away. But when we think of the amount of options available and any path is as uncertain as another, it may be worth it just to consider what you want to do and let time specify it for you. Reading today from the book Mastery by Robert Greene, you're going to understand the next strategy of finding your life's task or purpose. Contemplation of your purpose can sow some doubt into what you're currently doing, but the thoughts are worth thinking about. It can bring about a question like, am I doing what I really want to do? Or can what I'm doing now translate to what I really want to do? But no matter where you are, you can still get to where you want to go. And Robert Greene has this to say. This is a strategy to occupy the perfect niche or the Darwinian strategy. As a child growing up in Madras, India in the late 1950s, V.S. Ramachandran knew he was different. He was not interested in sports or the other usual pursuits of boys his age. He loved to read about science. In his loneliness, he would often wander along the beach and soon he became fascinated by the incredible variety of seashells that washed up on the shore. He began to collect them and study them and study the subject in detail. It gave him a feeling of power. Here was a field he had all to himself. Nobody in school could ever know as much as he did about shells. Soon he was drawn to the strangest varieties of seashells, such as the xenophora, an organism that collects discarded shells and uses them for camouflage. In a way, he was like the xenophora, an anomaly. In nature, these anomalies often serve a larger evolutionary purpose. They can lead to the occupation of new ecological niches, offering a greater chance of survival. Could Ramachandran say the same thing about his own strangeness? Over the years, he transferred his boyhood interest into other subjects, human anatomical abnormalities, peculiar phenomena in chemistry, and so on. His father, fearing that the young man would end up in some esoteric field of research, convinced him to enroll in medical school. There, he would be exposed to all sides of science and would come out of it with a practical skill. Ramachandran complied. Isn't that the truth? I mean, I think most people at least my age can think of how many times their parents talked them out of the things they wanted to do. And if you follow Gary Vee, he pretty much tells you to your parents to tell your parents to fuck right off. 
and that might be the thing you need to do. Maybe not. Maybe you're an idiot. <laughs> Maybe you actually do need to stick it out. Maybe you're not as talented as you think you are. But that's the whole point, is that you're trying to find out exactly what you need to do. Pardon me. I have poured myself a pint of Guinness, and I'm drinking it. It's Saturday night. <sighs> anyway. Although the studies in medical school interested him, after a while, he grew restless. He disliked all of the rote learning. He wanted to experiment and discover, not memorize. little side note here. That's something that uh, I can relate to also because of the way that I've learned things. The way I learn things is by doing things. Um, I'm terrible in school and in um, academic environments or scholastic, I guess that's the word, um, pursuits. So if you give me a book to read, it's not that the book isn't valuable and that I shouldn't read it because I do, but the way I learn things is by making mistakes and doing it. It's the long road, but I tend to understand things much better. My problem is, is that it becomes difficult to articulate to the people who aren't in the know. But anyway, enough about me. He began to read all kinds of science journals and books that were not on the reading list. One such book was Eye and, the, and Brain by the visual neuroscientist Richard Gregory. What particularly intrigued him were experiments on optical illusions and blind spots, anomalies in the visual system that, it could, that could explain something about how the brain itself functioned. Stimulated by this book, he conducted his own experiments, the results of which he managed to get published in a prestigious journal, which in turn led to an invitation to study visual neuroscience in the graduate department at Cambridge University. Excited by this chance to pursue something more suited to his interests, Ramachandran accepted the invitation. After a few months at Cambridge, or Cambridge, I don't know how you're supposed to say that. However, he realized that he did not fit in this environment. In his boyhood dreams, science was a great romantic adventure, an almost religious-like quest for the truth. But at Cambridge, for the students and faculty, it seemed to be more like a job. You put in your hours, you contributed some small piece to, st uh, to a statistical analysis. And that was that. Sorry, that was a mouthful. <sighs> he soldiered on, finding his own interest within the department and completed his degree. A few years later, he was hired as an assistant professor in visual psychology at the University of California in San Diego. As had happened so many times before, after a few years, his mind began to drift to yet another subject, this time to the study of the brain itself. He became intrigued by the phenomenon of phantom limbs, people who have had an arm or leg amputated and yet still feel a paralyzing pain in the missing limb. He proceeded to conduct experiments on the phantom limb subjects. These experiments led to some exciting discoveries about the brain itself, as well as a novel way to relieve such patients of their pain. Suddenly, the feeling of not fitting in, of restlessness, was gone. Studying anomalous neurological disorders would be the subject to which he could devote the rest of his life. It opened up questions that fascinated him about the evolution of consciousness, the origin of language, and so on. It was as if he had come full circle to the days of collecting the rarest forms of seashells. This was a niche he had all to himself, one he could command for years to come, that corresponded to his deepest inclinations, and would serve best the cause of scientific advancement. Quite a story. Tells you how to niche down. I mean, you can hear that in if you're a business owner of any kind. 
or you have an idea or you want to be an entrepreneur or whatever, you venture out and be a business owner, that's something that you end up thinking about is how much you can niche yourself so that you minimize the amount of competition. We have one more example here. For Yoki Matsuoka, I'm probably going to butcher that name. So if Yoki or anybody Japanese is out there, I apologize. Childhood was a period of confusion and blur. Growing up in Japan in the 1970s, everything seemed laid out for her in advance. The school systems would funnel her into a field that was appropriate for girls and the possibilities were rather narrow. Her parents, believing in the importance of sport in her development, pushed her to, into competitive swimming at a very early age. They also had her take up the piano. For other children in Japan, it may have been comforting to have their lives directed in such a fashion, but for Yoki, it was painful. She was interested in all kinds of subjects, particularly math and science. She liked sports, but not swimming. She had no idea what she wanted to become or how she could possibly fit into such a regimented world. At the age of 11, she finally, finally asserted herself. She had had enough of swimming and wanted to take up tennis. Her parents agreed to her wishes. Being intensely competitive, she had great dreams for herself as a tennis player, but she was starting out in the sport rather late in life. To make up for lost time, she would have to undergo an almost impossibly rigorous practice schedule. She traveled outside of Tokyo for training and so would do her homework on the ride back at night. Often having to stand up in the crowded car, she would crack open her math and physics books and work out the equations. She loved solving puzzles, and in doing this homework, her mind would become so completely absorbed in the problems that she was barely aware of the time passing. In a strange way, it was similar to the sensation she felt on the tennis court, a deep focus where nothing could distract her. little side note, I did a podcast series on flow and focus. And that might be interesting for you to read. You can go and check those out. Um, that'll give you a, a deep insight into the passage of time and time distortion when you are in a flow state. Anyway, in the few th free months on the train, Yoki would think about her future. Science and sports were the two great interests in her life. In them, she could express all of the different sides of her character, her love of competing, working with her hands, moving gracefully, analyzing, and solving problems. In Japan, you had to choose a career that was generally quite specialized. Whatever she chose would require sacrificing her other interests, which depressed her to no end. One day, she daydreamed about inventing a robot that could play tennis with her. <laughs> inventing and playing against such a robot would satisfy all the different sides of her character, but it was only a dream. Although she had risen through the ranks to become one of the top tennis prospects in Japan, she quickly realized that this was not to be her future. In practice, no one could beat her, but in competition, she would often freeze up, overthink the situation, and lose to inferior players. Boy, ain't that the truth. She also suffered some debilitating injuries. She would have to focus on academics and not on sports. After attending a tennis academy in Florida, she convinced her parents to let her stay in the States and apply to the University of California at Berkeley. At Berkeley, she could not decide on a major. Nothing seemed to quite fit with her wide-ranging interests. I know I can relate to that. 
seem to be interested in bloody well everything. For lack of anything better, she settled on electrical engineering. No big deal. One day she confided to a professor in her department about her youthful dream to build a robot to play tennis with her. Much to her surprise, the professor didn't laugh, but instead invited her to join his graduate lab for robotics. Her work there showed so much promise that she was later admitted to the graduate school at MIT, where she joined the artificial intelligence lab of, lab of robotics pioneer Rodney Brooks. They were developing a robot with artificial intelligence, and Matsuoka volunteered to design the hand and arms. The accolades don't seem to stop with this one. Ever since she was a child, she had pondered her own hands while she was playing tennis or the piano or while scribbling out math equations. The human hand was a miracle of design, and it really is. Try drawing one. Although this was not exactly sports, she would be working with her hands to construct the hand. Finally, at last something that suited a larger range of her interests, she worked at night and day on building a new kind of robotic limb, one that possessed as much possible the delicate grasping power of the human hand. Her design dazzled Brooks. It was years ahead of anything she had any, anyone had ever developed. Feeling that there was a critical lack in her knowledge, she decided to gain an additional degree in neuroscience. <clears throat> no big deal. I'm starting not to like her. If she could better understand the connection between the hand and the brain, she could design a prosthetic limb that would feel and respond like a human hand. She continued this process, adding new fields of science to her resume, culminating in the creation of a completely new field, one that she would dub neurobiotics. The design of robots that possessed simulated versions of human neurology, bringing them closer to life itself. Forging this field would bring her to great success in science and put her in the ultimate position of power, the ability to freely combine all of her interests. The career world is like an ecological system. People occupy particular fields within which they must completely compete for resources and survival. The more people there are crowded into a space, the harder it becomes to thrive there. Working in such a field will, will tend to wear you out as you struggle to get attention, to play the political games, to win scarce resources for yourself. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Before I arrived in Spain, I was working as a landscape construction foreman. And there was a whole bunch of people just like me. And the competition was fierce just to get inside the office and get outside of the pouring rain and freezing rain and horrible weather and arduous, terrible, thankless work. And it was impressively difficult to get anywhere because the, the amount of competition, it was basically like a low ceiling. It was super wide, the amount of competition and a low ceiling. And then once you got to the next tier, you were making real money. And needless to say, people would stab each other in the back. It was, it was horribly political. And not that that that, that was the, the company's fault necessarily. It was just a, the nature of that type of business. When you're a laborer, that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, the hierarchy is very, is very flat in those things. To be fair, I had an excellent boss. Um, you know, a much better man than myself at the time. And, uh, and very fair and did exactly what he could to try to help build people up. So I'm not, I'm not shitting on anybody. But that job sucked balls. But anyway, um, 
no one wants to be in that kind of uh, situation. And it's really hard to find yourself a little bit of a niche in, and especially in the labor field. So this is something that I, uh, I can relate to and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. But anyway, back to the book. You spend so much time at these games that you have very little time left over for true mastery. You are seduced into such fields because you see others making a living, treading the familiar path. You're not aware of, of how difficult such a life can be. That's true, especially for the young people who would be listening. You have no idea how hard it is to actually just do what everyone else does, especially if you have greater interests or more complicated interests or, or just deep passions in something. It, it's soul crushing. No one wants to be in a cubicle or working outside in miserable weather with a bunch of morons. It really does suck. Anyway, the game you want to play is different. To instead find a niche in the ecology that you can dominate. It is never a simple process to find such a niche. It requires patience and a particular strategy. In the beginning, you choose a field that roughly corresponds to your interests. Medicine, electrical engineering, for example. From there, you can go in one of two directions. The first is the Ramachandran path. From within you, your chosen field, you look for side paths that particularly attract you. In this case... Um, in his case, the science of perception and optics. When it is possible, you make a move to this narrower field. You continue this process until you eventually hit upon a totally unoccupied niche. The narrower, the better. In some ways, the niche corresponds to your uniqueness, much as Ramachandran's particular form of neurology corresponds to his own primal sense of feeling like an exception. I love Guinness. The second is the Matsuoko path. Once you have mastered your first field, robotics, you look for other fields or skills that you can conquer, like neuroscience, on your own time if necessary. You can now combine this added field of knowledge to the original one, perhaps creating a new field, or at least making a novel connections between them. You continue this process as long as you wish, but in Matsuoka's case, Matsuoka, I keep saying Matsuoko, whoops, she never stops expanding. Ultimately, you create a field that is uniquely your own. The second version fits in well with a culture where information is so widely available and in which connecting ideas is a form of power. In either direction, you have found a niche that is not crowded with competitors. You have a freedom to roam, to pursue particular questions that interest you. You set your own agenda and command the resources available to this niche. Unburdened by overwhelming competition and politicking, you have time and space to bring to flower your life's task. This has been episode 25 of the Hero Bells podcast. If you're not following me yet on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, you should be. So on Instagram, you can find me at hero underscore kbells and Facebook at hero kbells. <clears throat> and YouTube, search Hero Bells where you can find all sorts of content to help you get in shape inexpensively, obviously, because the videos are there and they're free and fast and effective. It works. I got a 40-day challenge on there for you, completely free. I did it myself and it's broken down. I, I know 40 days sounds like a lot. It's not. And I broke it down week by week by task and purpose so that you can stop and you can pick and choose and make it as long or as short as you need to do with repetitions and sets and all that kind of stuff. And you can watch me do it and make an ass of myself. So I hope you enjoy that. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And 
please continue to follow me and listen to this podcast if you want. And I would really hope you do. Please comment, 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 comment. I want your feedback. It means a lot to me. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Keep kicking ass.